0: This inspiring message comes to you from Impact Church in Kingston, Ontario, where we are committed to living like Jesus and loving like Jesus. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. So I've had about 18 months to prepare for, for today's announcement, um, and it's a season of transition. Transition is a, a tricky period of time. You, you're moving into a new stage, but you, and you know where you're going, but you're not there yet. Maybe you felt that place where you, you know where you're going. You're moving into a new stage, but as you start to take those first steps into that new life, the enormity of what you're walking into rises up before you, kind of the same way your stomach is rising up into your chest. And you try to catch your thoughts the same way you try to catch your breath. Maybe, maybe in between heartbeats that are echoing through you, every fear and every doubt you've ever had about your skills, your abilities, or your value is coming out in the form of questions that you would never dare give voice to. It's that moment in the middle of transition that I want to explore today. It's, it's the place where the enemy tries to convince us to retreat. It's, it's the place where the enemy wants to convince us to give into the fear of the unknown and go back into this place of safety, into the place of the known. It's that place where we prepare for our promised land. It's often a lot going on in those moments. It's a lot of questions, more questions than answers quite often. And, And it can be very overwhelming and exciting all at the same time. Often the difference between excitement and anxiety in your body is a very fine line. And at that moment, we're in very good company because that's the exact same place that we find Joshua when we turn to the book of Joshua, chapter 1. At this point in Joshua's life, his mentor and leader, Moses, has just died. And God is speaking to him directly. Let's read what God says to Joshua in Joshua 1, verses 2 and 3, and verse 5. Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, the time has come. For you to lead these people, the Israelites, across the Jordan River into the land I am giving them. I promise you what I promised Moses. Wherever you set foot, you will be on land I have given you. And verse 5. No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live. For I will be with you as I was with Moses. I will not fail you or abandon you. I think Joshua must have been having some pretty big feels right about then. He's still mourning when all of a sudden the promise they'd been waiting 40 years for is about to be fulfilled. When you've been waiting on the promises of God, no matter how long you've been waiting, when he says it's time to go, it can take your breath away. At that moment of transition, Joshua didn't express any concerns out loud. But as God's instructing Joshua on how to prepare for the promised land, he answers Joshua's concerns the same way he still answers ours today. Joshua's not a wimpy guy. He's not young. He's not inexperienced. He had been by Moses' side for 40 years. He is one of the two most senior people in the entire nation of Israel. He is one of the 12 spies that was sent to scope out the Promised Land. So he is one of two people that actually knows what to expect on the other side of the Jordan River. His leadership had been proven in battle against the Amalekites. So now he's being charged to lead the people into the Promised Land. So, it seems strange when we look at the next few verses that God's telling him how to prepare for the promised land by telling him to be strong and courageous. Not once, but three times. These commands to be strong and courageous are actually choices that God is asking him to make as he's preparing. These choices are in response to the fear, the, the traps that fear sets in this season of transition. And these traps are designed... For each one of us, at their most effective, to derail us completely and send us scampering back into the wilderness. Or at their least effective, to, to derail us from our victory. To, to, send, to send us limping into our promised land. To take our victory away. So the first trap is found in Joshua 1.6. It says, be strong and courageous, for you are the one to lead the people to possess the land I swore their ancestors I would give them. This doubt, this trap, is doubt in us as the right person. The fact that Joshua has chosen to lead the people into the promised land is not a surprise to Joshua. Moses had already told him this before he died. But doubt in us or in our understanding is actually one of the ways the enemy is most, most successful at, at stumbling us since the very beginning of time. He tried it in the garden Eden with Eve. Uh, in Genesis 3.1 he says, did God really say you must not eat the fruit? The question is designed to cause Eve to doubt her understanding of what God had really said. The enemy even tries it with Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew 4.3 when he says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. This trap is where identity and insecurity collide. Insecurity will always start with a reason why I can't or I shouldn't. It has a foundation in truth, but it is completely focused on what I can or cannot do on my own. Insecurity will always tell us that there is someone better, that there is someone smarter, wiser, more educated, taller, shorter, thinner, stronger, bolder, more eloquent, older, younger, that there is someone more talented, more serious, more gifted, someone with less of a past, someone with more of a past. Insecurity will tell us that there is always Someone that has more skill. Insecurity will always lie and tell us that we are not enough, that our history is too much, that we don't deserve what we desire, and that somehow we deserve what we got. Insecurity is the voice of the enemy working over time to keep us from our place of promise. Insecurity will never acknowledge the the work of the cross in your life. But Jesus came to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that when he rose from the dead, sin no longer had the power to hold us captive. Insecurity no longer has the final word in our lives. Jesus' resurrection gives us the gift of restoration, restoration of a res- relationship with the Father and restoration of our God-given identity. Now, this is by no means a comprehensive list and I'm going to run through it pretty quickly so you might want to get your cameras ready. Identity tells us that we are created in God's image. We are precious to God. We have the mind of Christ. We have been adopted through Jesus Christ. We are rooted in Christ. We are God's masterpiece. We are so loved. We are chosen. We are beautiful. We are accepted. We are loved. We are precious. We are strong. We are cared for. We are protected. We are unique. We are important. We are forgiven. We were created for a purpose, we are more than conquerors, we are a new creation, we are to shine bright, we are the apple of his eye, and we are his. Identity is the voice of God that speaks life over and over again, it's who he created us to be. Identity is the truth of who we can be when we rely on the God who created us, who walks with us, and who strengthens us. So, what's the choice that God's giving us? He's asking us to have the courage to believe who he says we are. He's asking us to say yes to our identity. The second trap is found in Joshua 1, verses 7 and 8. Be strong and courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate from them, turning either to the right or the left. Then you will be successful in everything you do. Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so you will be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed. This trap is doubt in the plan. The hardest part about this doubt is letting go of the expectation that we need to know the whole plan before we can believe in it. So I'm going to say that again. The hardest part about this doubt is letting go of the expectation that we should know the whole plan before we can believe in it. The part of the plan Joshua did know was that he was supposed to lead the Israelites into the promised land. He also had the book of instruction that covered everything from how to deal with a rebellious son and tithing to what celebrations to hold and when. What he didn't know was the practical things like I don't know, how to cross the Jordan River when it was in flood season, or how to defeat the enemies once he got across the Jordan River. (laughs) And God's comfort to Joshua in the face of this doubt is kind of hard to swallow. What he's saying in a nutshell is, trust that I have a plan, you don't need to know what it is, you just need to follow my book of instructions, and I'll let you know what the deal is when it's time. And God's already established this plan, this pattern with the nation of Israel way back. He didn't let them know how he was going to cross the Red Sea until they were on the shore of the Red Sea. And then he said, lift up your staff and part of the waters. He waited until they were already in the desert before he said, oh, by the way, here's manna and this is how I'm going to feed you. If we continue to read through the book of Joshua, we see that he tells them how to cross the Jordan River, when it's time to cross the Jordan River. we tell He shows them how to sh- defeat Jericho when it's time to defeat Jericho. He's not trying to keep us in suspense here. It's, it's not God's plan to keep us on the hook. But if we knew the amazing feats he was going to call us to, would we have the faith to keep walking in that direction before we were equipped with the trust to walk it out? So Twenty-ish years ago when my life was falling apart and I barely had the trust to believe that God still cared about me, I would have been terrified to consider the plans and purposes of God that are unfolding in my life now. I would never have considered that I could be a missionary or that I could be speaking to all of you this morning about God's faithfulness. Had I known then what I know now, the weight of God's plans for my life would have crushed the hope right out of me because there was not enough of the foundation or character of Christ in my life to carry the weight of those plans. It took time for me to get to know God and to hear his voice and trust him for this level. And it's going to take time for me to grow for the next level. What God is asking Joshua to do here is get real cozy with the book of instruction to meditate on it night and day. And why is that? Well, the more familiar you are with the written word, the more familiar you become with the author. We forget sometimes that God didn't speak to his people very often back then. We have the whole Bible, so we see God speaking from Genesis right through to Revelation. But sometimes it was decades, generations, sometimes even centuries between when God would speak to his people. The beginning of this book is the first time that God is speaking to Joshua directly. God spoke to Moses, but Joshua hadn't heard from God directly up to this point. And when, when God does speak to Joshua, he uses the same words that, he, that Moses used, so that God would know that it was Joshua. Moses was hearing from God all the time. But Moses was a special character. He was, after all, the very first person in all of history to receive a download from the cloud on his tablet. Now, Joshua had been with Moses. He knew about God. He trusted God and was willing to follow God, but he didn't know God. So what God's really telling Joshua to do is become intimate with the voice of God through his word. Because the more intimate we become with the voice of God through his word, the more we hear him when he speaks to our spirit. The more we hear him when, we speak to his, when he speaks to our spirit, the more we trust what he is saying and the more we're willing to follow his instructions the more clearly we hear him when he speaks to our spirit and the more we follow his instructions, the more he can unfold the plans and purposes he has for our life. See, what we learn about God and what he has to say about us and and his plans and purposes for us in church or in connect group or equip class or discover groups accounts for about 10% of all that God has for us and wants us to know. And that's a really important 10%. Not for the least of which is, you know, it's, a, it's a, a weekly tracking, a way to check up, to make sure that we're still on the right path. But the other 90% of all that God has for us is learned in personal time in his word and in prayer. That's the relationship part of our walk with God. It's like this, I can call you every single day and I can say, Shanna, You are the apple of his eye. It takes about five seconds. And it's good, and it will encourage you. But what are you hearing for the other 86,395 seconds of the day? So what is the choice God's giving us? He's asking us to have the courage to trust his plans. He's asking us to say yes to deeper intimacy with him. The third trap is found in Joshua 1.9. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This trap is doubt in the continued presence of God with us. Somehow, we get to thinking that once the plan is set and we're on our way, sink or swim, We're on our own. And that thinking can get us into some pretty deep water. Let's pop over to the New Testament for a moment to Matthew 14. Jesus had just spent the day teaching and feeding the way he does. And he sent the disciples in a boat to cross the lake while he finished up. While they're crossing the lake, a big storm comes up and the disciples are in real trouble. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus comes walking on the water and the disciples are terrified at first because they don't recognize him. I'm going to pick up the story in verse 27. But Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid. Take courage. I am here. Sound familiar? Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat walking on the water towards Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. This doubt is really about where our focus is. Is it on the storms and struggles all around us? Or is it on the one who's already overcome the storms and struggles? Jesus was already walking on the water in the middle of the strong wind and waves. He had already overcome that struggle and he gave Peter the authority to overcome that struggle when he said, come. Come. As long as Peter walked confidently in his purpose and in the presence of God, he was good. But as soon as he shifted his focus, allowing doubt to overcome, he began to falter. Often we see that God is there, but we doubt his willingness to accomplish or fulfill the promises that he has made in our lives. This doubt will tell us that maybe that promise is for someone else. Many years ago I was just starting to learn about healing and at the same time my father was battling cancer. I traveled home from my sister's wedding armed with a long list of healing scriptures confident that if my father would take them as a daily prescription and join me in petitioning God for his healing that he'd be healed. My father looked at the list of scriptures and tossed them aside and responded I don't doubt that God can heal me. I doubt that he will. The significance of that statement struck me again as I was preparing for this message. For my father, as for many of us, this doubt is the one that will turn us back to the wilderness with such finality that it's difficult to overcome. The Israelites had been here before. In fact, it was this very doubt that gave them the opportunity for their 40-year journey in the very first place. They sent 12 spies to scope out the promised land, and of those 12 spies, two of them came back declaring the goodness of God in the land of promise, and 10 came back declaring the enormity of the enemy they would have to overcome. They chose to focus on the enemy rather than on the promises of God. They saw the enemy as too big for them to overcome. In this doubt, we can begin to think that we're the measuring stick that God uses when he determines how much he's willing to invest in fulfilling his plans. That it's our skills, our abilities, our perseverance, and that maybe if we have too many doubts, too many fears, too many insecurities, or make too many mistakes, he'll determine that we don't measure up and he'll scrap the whole deal. But we need to know that the measuring stick God uses is his character, not ours. I'm going to say that again. The measuring stick that God uses to determine how much he is willing to invest in fulfilling his plans and purposes is his character, not ours. His word is filled with the assurance of his character over and over again. And just like our identity, this is by no means a comprehensive list. I was given a time limit for this morning. God is a shield around us. He is faithful, unchanging, good and compassionate. God is our refuge. He is jealous. God is the rock. He is light. Our help, our strength. God is sovereign. God is love. God is merciful, the giver of authority, creator of the world, faithful and true. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, a sure foundation, infinite. God is for us, the Holy One, our salvation, our peace, rich in mercy. God is not just a plan maker. He is a plan completer. God puts things in motion with the end result in mind. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the one who was and is and is to come. He is the great I am. And on the cross, Jesus' final declaration wasn't to be continued. It was tetelestai. It is finished. It is finished. This means that we can step out of the boat in faith, knowing that God is with us. We can enter the promised land where giants live, knowing that it is already ours. We can take hold of every promise that is in His Word as our inheritance, or as Carling said a couple of weeks ago, as the spoils of a war that's already been won. So, what's the choice God's giving us? He's asking us to have the courage to trust His character. He's asking us to say yes to his promises. Now, I am going to be the first person to say I have given in to all of these doubts at some point in my life many times over. It's part of the journey. And God isn't disappointed because we have doubts or give in to them or make mistakes. God isn't even surprised. Mind blown, I know. In fact, he knew beforehand just how many retakes it was going to take to get to this point, and he planned for it in advance. He doesn't give us these retakes to discourage us by our failures. He wants to give us every opportunity to have victory in the face of these doubts. Victory so we can walk into our promised land with our heads held high, shoulders back, secure in the knowledge that God is for us. He wants us to know that he will never leave us or forsake us. He wants us comforted by the promises that he has made for us and confident that he has plans for us. And they're plans for good and not for disaster. Plans to give us a future and a hope. God commands us us and Joshua to be strong and courageous because he knows that it's going to take a full-on faith in who God is and who he says we are, which is found in spending time in his word to be able to walk out what's ahead. But he doesn't just command us to be strong and courageous, he also equips us to be strong and courageous so that we can walk in victory. Second Samuel twenty-two thirty-one 31-34, David sings, As for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He causes me to stand on the heights. He trains my hand for battle; my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You make my your saving help my shield. Your help has made me great. You provide a broad path for my feet so that my ankles do not give way. It's his equipping It's his strength that we can rely on. He has overcome every storm and struggle we face. And he's given us the authority to overcome every storm and struggle. It usually doesn't look the way we think it should. But we can be absolutely certain that when we rely on him, his way is always better. As the worship team is going to come, I want to end with this thought. There are too many people, too many Christians stumbling around in the wilderness, not sure if they're headed in the right direction, not even sure if there is a promised land. They feel like an ant, busy at being busy, with the mantra, well, this is my lot in life. It's not a lot, but it's a life. They're so battle-worn and so weary of trying to make it on their own, trying to earn their way into a place of peace. Confident that if this just works out, things will be okay. If this just happens, then I can rest. And they're standing on some erroneous teaching that says God only helps those who help themselves. But God's word says that it's his strength, his peace, his sufficiency that is available to us. And the only way we can help ourselves, the only way we can succeed is by accepting what he's offering. If that's you today, you need to know that God has a promised land for you. And God wants to give you the assurance of that promise today. God did not call us to barely survive this journey. He calls us to a place of victory and rest, where his perfect peace in the midst of the storm is our constant companion. He calls us to a place where his promises are fulfilled in our lives every day so that he can be glorified in every area of our life. It is our choice. God is a gentleman, and he will not force his way on us. We can have as many retakes as we need. So how will you prepare for your promised land? Will you be strong and courageous? Will you say yes to your identity, to deeper intimacy with God and to his promises?